Amen. <clears throat> Good morning. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at the Oaks, and we're continuing on with our sermon series in the book of Matthew. And uh, today we're going to be in Matthew 26, verses 36 through 56. Um, it's, it's 20 verses. It's a little bit long. Normally, I would have you guys stand for the reading of the word. Uh, but today, since we you know, have kind of an extended passage, you can go ahead and remain in your seats. So this is uh, Matthew 26, 36 through 56. It says, Then Jesus went with them, his disciples, to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father... If this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. And while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, this one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi, and he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. And they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? that it must be so. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out against a robber with a sword and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but all of this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all of the disciples left him and fled. This is the word of the Lord. Are we better than the disciples? Are we better than the abandoners of Jesus? I don't know about you, but I like to project myself uh, into the hero role anytime I read the Bible or watch a movie. I kind of uh, project myself onto this hero role like, oh yeah, I would have done it just like that hero. Or this person over here that failed that wouldn't have been me, right? If when, I look, when I look in history, it's like, oh, you know, if I had been in Nazi Germany, 
I would have been one of the individuals that would have stood up and remained you know, faithful and defended uh, the innocent. Or if I had been in the civil rights movement, I would have been one of the ones that was standing up uh, for justice. Um, I would have done, done this, or I would have done that. I'm the hero of the story. I read myself into this hero role. But actually, I think that we probably overestimate our hero qualities and underestimate our ability to abandon. I don't know if you've ever seen this show called What Would You Do? Anybody ever see this, the, the show What Would You Do? So the premise of the show is where they conduct these social experiments. And, and what they do is they have a group of actors and they'll kind of play out a scenario in the real world. Like they'll, they'll go to a coffee shop or to a restaurant and they'll have a group of actors play a role and then let real people come into the place of business and witness a scene to see what would they do? What would you do? And so, uh, for example, like what they'll do is they'll have a, a scene of actors and they'll have someone maybe berate or make fun of someone else for being poor or for being handicapped or something like that. And then they'll see what, how do people that think that this is a real thing going on, what do they do? How do they react? Um, and, and this is the kind of scenario that they, that they come up with. And I've often thought when I'm watching this show to see how people respond, oh yeah, I wouldn't have been one of those people that just stay quiet while someone mocks someone else for being poor, right? I would be the hero. I would be the hero. I would speak out. Um, but I often then wonder, would I really be the one to speak out? Would I? What if it, what if it cost me something? If the truth... Uh, was told about me and probably about you, we're likely a whole lot more like the disciples than we would choose to admit. And in our text today, uh, we see what is, in my opinion, one of the saddest uh, passages of all Scripture. We see Jesus begin um, the final you know, walk to the cross, and it begins here in this garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus begins to walk in life in obedience towards his death, and he does it utterly alone. Uh, at first, he's with his disciples. They go into the garden, and then Jesus kind of selects uh, a few of the inner circle, Peter and, uh, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and they go into the, uh, deeper into the garden, and what happens? His disciples fall asleep. They, they can't even stay awake with him, it says, for one hour. And then one of his disciples betrays him. One of his very own disciples betrays him. And then all of the disciples, it says, all of them ran. They all scatter. They all abandon Jesus. And then it all culminates and builds to this point that we know is coming on the cross, where then Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus, beginning in the garden, he's, he's beginning uh, this, this uh, journey to take on our sin, and it cultivates ultimately, with him being completely, completely abandoned. Everyone abandons Jesus. Everyone forsakes Jesus, God and men. Everyone leaves him. And he's obedient to the point of the cross, and he's left to do it utterly alone and abandoned. Abandoned. 
Now, the word abandoned is an emotionally loaded word. Uh, it conjures up more than just this idea of being alone. When I say abandoned, it doesn't just mean alone. Being alone is bad enough in and of itself, right? If you've ever, if you've ever felt loneliness, that in and of itself is bad enough. But abandonment is even more devastating because it brings up this idea that someone who should have been there for me wasn't. I'm alone, but I shouldn't have been. Someone didn't fulfill their obligation to me. Inherent in the idea of, of abandonment isn't just being alone, but it's this idea of betrayal. It's an idea of a deep wound and hurt. And we've, I'm certainly we've, we've read or seen the stories where uh, children have, are abandoned by parents. Or, or maybe this idea of abandonment isn't even like abstract for you. It's not even just something like you read about. For you, maybe this idea of abandonment is very real. It's very tangible. You've experienced it personally, uh, this feeling of being abandoned. Or on the flip side, maybe you're someone who has abandoned. Maybe you're an abandoner. You should have been there for someone in their time of need and you weren't. And now you're dealing with the fallout from that. You're dealing with the guilt from that, the fracture. So abandonment. Now, in order for us to properly uh, set up the text today and understand this, this uh, theme of abandonment, we need to understand the gravity of, of what's taking place here. So let's take a little time to, to look into the Word and see exactly what's going on and how it speaks to this idea of abandonment. Uh, we see Jesus with his disciples. He's already known and foretold that he'll be arrested and crucified, and now Jesus is only hours or minutes away from being betrayed, and he goes with his disciples into the garden to pray, and it says in verse 37 that, again, he's walking into the, the inner part of the garden with uh, kind of this inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John. And it says something really interesting about Jesus. It says that he begins to feel sorrow, and it says that he's troubled, and that word troubled in the original languages would be more accurately translated horrified. So, so Jesus is sorrowful and horrified, and he tells Peter, James, and John, I am so sorrowful, so horrified in my spirit to, that it's to the point of death. And in fact, Jesus goes a little bit further, and it says that he collapses on his face, legs give out. His legs give out, and he falls on his face. And in the Gospel of Luke, in a parallel passage, uh, Luke records, Luke was the doctor, so he, he records this interesting physiological response where, it, where Luke records that Jesus begins to sweat drops of blood. This is a real medical condition, and I'm going to have to read it. It's blood sweating is called hematohydrosis. And according to this medical journal, it may occur in individuals suffering from extremely high levels of, of stress. Around the sweat glands, there are blood vessels which constrict under the pressure of great stress, and the blood vessels then attempt to dilate to the point of rupture, and it goes into the sweat glands. And as the glands produce a sweat, then they push the blood to the surface, and it appears as though the person is sweating drops of blood. So what is going on here? Why is Jesus having such a strong physiological response 
as he faces the cross. The reason why we have to ask that question is because hundreds, if not thousands, of Christians since the time of Jesus have been martyred for their faith and have done it in a way that, that seems more stoic than what Jesus appears to be doing right here. How is it that Jesus' own followers seem to have a better composure in facing death than, than what we see here uh, with Jesus? Well, the answer to that is that something is happening to Jesus that hasn't ever happened to anyone else in human history. Something else is going on here that none of Jesus's followers have ever experienced, and it's Jesus's prayers that tip us off to what that is. It says uh, in verse 39, Jesus says, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then in verse 42, he prays again. It says, and again for a second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, drink what? The cup, your will uh, be done. Then in verse 44, a third time, it says, so leaving them again, Jesus went away and prayed for a third time, saying the same words again. Okay, it's not an accident that Matthew is recording Jesus saying the same prayer over and over and over again. Uh, for, from the little that we know, Jesus probably was praying for a long time, praying, praying for uh, an hour. So Jesus was praying more than just these words, but why is it that it's only these words that Matthew is recording for us? It's because Matthew's trying to draw our attention to these words. He's mentioning the cup. Jesus prays about the cup that he, that he has to drink three times. What cup? What is the cup? The cup uh, was a very Jewish understanding of the wrath of God. In Jeremiah 25, 15 in the Old Testament, it says, So the Lord, the God of Israel, spoke to me in a vision, Take this cup from my hand. It is filled with the wine of my wrath. Isaiah 51, 17, Wake up, wake up, get up, O Jerusalem. You drank from the cup the Lord passed to you, which was full of his anger. This is what your sovereign Lord, even your God who judges his people, says, Look, I have removed from your hand the cup of intoxicating wine, the goblet full of my anger. You will no longer have to drink it. So this is a death march unlike any that anyone has ever experienced before. We're seeing Jesus beginning to anticipate or maybe even beginning to experience uh, taking on our sin and then therefore sensing God's wrath about to be poured out on him. And this is what is causing Jesus so much sorrow, so much horror, this idea of drinking in God's wrath. Uh, back in Genesis, in the first book of the Bible, we have Adam and Eve. We have the first Adam who sins in the garden, and in doing so, he fills up this cup of God's wrath. But then we have Jesus, a kind of second Adam, in a second garden, and he's preparing to drink the cup that the first Adam, that the, that the cup that was prepared for the first Adam and for all sinners. And so what we must see is that the story of the cross 
isn't just that Jesus was crucified and killed for our sin. Yes, that, that story of atonement is true. But that story actually begins here in the garden where Jesus prepares to drink the cup of God's wrath that should have been drank by me and should have been drank by you. Meaning that the gospel narrative, the story of the cross, isn't just about the Jews that betrayed Jesus or the Romans that arrested Jesus or the disciples that abandoned Jesus, but my story is present here and your story is present here. Jesus becomes the man of sorrows. He becomes horrified. His legs give out underneath him, and he becomes drenched in sweat and in blood, not because he is being uh, beaten and not because he is being uh, whipped. That hasn't even come yet. He's the man of sorrows because he's taking on my sin and the wrath that was saved for me. He's taking on your sin and the wrath that was prepared for you. Pastor Tim Keller, I listened to a sermon by Pastor Tim Keller, and he preached that it's possible, it's, 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 we don't know for sure, but it's possible that the reason that Jesus prays the same prayer three times in a row is because he's already beginning to experience or at least anticipate a kind of fracture in the relationship that he has with the Father. It's almost as though he's calling out to his Father, and he's re- as he's reaching out to heaven, hell has got him by the ankles. That's kind of the imagery that's going on here. Father, Father, and, but the Father is going to let what has to be done to be done. And we, we see these human, one of the things that makes this so gut-wrenching and sad is we see these human elements from Jesus in the text as well. It's almost as though Jesus knows that God is forsaking or will forsake him. And so Jesus says to his friends, Please, just stay up with me. Stay up with me and pray with me here in my final hours. Won't you, won't you as my friends not abandon me? Everybody else is going to abandon me. I invite you to not abandon me. And what happens? Well, the disciples, they sit around Jesus, they sing Kumbaya, and they say, Jesus, uh, thank you so much for what you're doing. Your labor is not in vain. Thank you so much for going to the cross for us. That's what happens, right? No, that's not what happened. Instead, his disciples, even though they're seeing that Jesus is incredibly disturbed, the disciples are witnessing Jesus uh, in an absolute meltdown, and their lack of empathy and lack of devotion to their friend is embarrassing. Their closest friend is in tremendous need, and they can't even stay awake for an hour to pray with him, to comfort him. And then, uh, and then Judas shows up, and it says in verse 56 that all of these disciples that have fallen asleep on him, they all abandon him. They all abandon him. It's the saddest text in Scripture that the one who has experienced unbroken communication and relationship with the Father for eternity past becomes the one who is forsaken by God and man. He's utterly alone, utterly abandoned. He's left to drink the cup of God's wrath alone on, a, on behalf of a bunch of lazy disciples with bedhead. 
And one of the temptations when reading Scripture that I have and maybe that you have is to read yourself into this good guy role in the story. Like, it would be easy for me to say, I would never abandon Jesus like that. Never. Or worse, I can relate to Jesus. I know just what Jesus is feeling. People are the worst. When in fact... If I had been there, I wouldn't be Jesus. I would probably be the disciples. I would have run too. I would have left Jesus there to drink the cup of wrath intended for me. And what this text shows us is that we are complicit in his suffering. Jesus is suffering because he's taking on sin and he's taking on the wrath. His suffering wasn't just the physical torment. There was spiritual torment that was taking place there too. And in our story, because we are sinners, we are complicit in that. Jesus was suffering tremendously to the point of death. He was horrified. He became the man of sorrows. And because of me, I caused that. And this is the sobering reality that we all have to come to. That I am the one who abandons God, that every time I break a command, that every time I sin, that I'm I'm abandoning God and others. If it's true, as Jesus said it was, that the two greatest commandments are to what? To love God and to love others, right? To not abandon, essentially, right? To love God and to love others. Then every time that I sin or break a commandment, what am I doing? I'm committing committing an act of abandonment. So it's not just, I I can't just read myself into this as as the hero or read myself into this as uh, the victim, but, but I have to see that I'm perpetuating this cosmic abandonment. In verse 45, Jesus says, See the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of Who? The Jews? No. Into the hands of what? Into the hands of sinners. In other words, the betrayal, the abandonment, isn't just Judas or the the disciples or the Romans. Uh, It's sinners. And I am a sinner. I'm an abandoner. In the first garden, Adam abandons God with his act of sin. And in the second garden, we all abandon God with our sin. But... It would be a really downer day if that was the end of the gospel story. But it's not. The story here isn't just that we are abandoners and we're really bad people. Now go try to be better. That's That's not the gospel narrative. The story here is that Jesus doesn't abandon abandoners. Jesus doesn't abandon the abandoners. Even in the, middle, the very act of being betrayed, Jesus calls Judas friend. Even when his disciples are fleeing, he's saying all of this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to be obedient to this. I'm going, I'm going to drink the cup of wrath. I'm not going to abandon abandoners. I'm not going to abandon those who have abandoned me. What great love. This is the most altruistic uh, moment in all of history. There's nothing in it for Jesus. 
There's no relational dynamic here that he's trying to improve. God is going to forsake him, man is forsaking him, and yet he is still going to be obedient. What great love. And in fact, these are words that Jesus says to these abandoners after they have abandoned him. In John 14, Jesus tells his abandoners, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not, I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, horrified. Do not let your hearts be troubled, horrified, like I was for you. Do not be afraid. Matthew 28, verse 20, he says to them, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Jesus doesn't abandon abandoners like us. And I think we live under a constant fear of abandonment, don't we? Like, is that how we relate to God, as though he's going to abandon us or that others are going to abandon us? We live under this fear of abandonment, and it impacts the way in which we relate to God and to others when we're constantly in this fear of being uh, abandoned. When I was, uh, it's crazy to think about now, but 20 years ago when I was in college, uh, I was part of a fight club. Uh, You know, you've seen the movie Fight Club, right? Uh, I was part of a fight club, like a legitimate fight club in college. And so what we would do, it was a college, it was a university for uh, uh, prospective pastors. I don't know what that says about pastors. They got to get the violence out of them before they, you know, go become a pastor. Uh, so, so it's a university full of, you know, 20, 30 young, young guys that uh, want to be pastors. And we would sneak because we knew that this, we'd get in serious trouble. So we'd wait until like the middle of the night. And then we would, we would break in because some of us were security guards and we had keys to, uh, to the, the campus. So we would sneak into a wrestling loft where they had, you know, a, a mats the size of this room. You know, this entire room, imagine this whole room just covered with nothing but wrestling mats. So we'd go to this wrestling loft and we would fight. We would, you know, guy, two guys would kind of pair up and, okay, I'll fight you. Cool, that, that sounds cool. And then they would kind of agree to the rules. Like, are we going to, are we going to wear headgear or not? Or what kind of gloves are we going to wear? Are we allowed to do this? Or so some guys might wrestle and other guys might box. And, you know, you'd kind of agree to the rules ahead of time. And well, at that time, to put this into context, at that time, I was dating uh, this total babe named Amber. Total babe. It's my wife, just, just, just for clarity, okay? Uh, and, uh, and, her, and her brother uh, was going to the same university as I was. Amber didn't. And uh, he wasn't super happy about me dating his sister, in part because what he was, he was really worried about was she had a history of breaking hearts. And, uh, and so he was afraid that, like, she was going to break my heart and that, the, that our friendship would, you know, kind of... Uh, devolve. And so that's what he was worried about. Uh, and so he, he wasn't real keen on this idea of, of me dating Amber. And um, the guys kind of, the guys, you know, uh, the group think of a bunch of like 20 or 30 year old uh, fight club college students usually isn't the best. And they, we all came up with this idea that it'd be fun to have me and Paul, my future brother-in-law, duke it out. 
And the, and the, the joke was, hey, Eric, if you lose, you can't date his sister anymore. Uh, and Paul, if you lose, then you've, you've got to you know, keep your mouth shut about you know, dating his sister. And so I was much more experienced than Paul in terms of like this fight club. So I thought, this is kind of fun. This is more of a joke. This will be more of like a sparring kind of thing. Like we'll just kind of dance around a little bit and, you know, throw a couple of punches and call it a night. That's kind of what I anticipated. Uh, and so, you know, the bell rings and then Paul comes out swinging, like guns a-blazing. Like he's just, he's charging like a bull, just swinging as hard as he can, just going at it. And I'm like, I was, I'm thinking to myself, I wasn't anticipating this. This is catching me off guard. And so... Uh, so I'm like, okay, well, you have to fight fire with fire at this point, right? Like, like my pride is on the line here, you know? I can't get beat by the rookie. Uh, so I opened him up with a couple of jabs, and then I, I caught him left-handed, so I, I, I caught him right on the jaw with a left hook. The problem is when I caught him in the jaw with a left hook, his mouth was open, which is a big no-no. Yeah, you guys know it's right. <gasps> his mouth was open, so I caught him right here, and it torqued his jaw so hard, it just exploded this part of his jaw and shattered his jaw. And he gets laid out on the ground, and then gets up and is in excruciating pain, and we realize like what's going on, because he's like, I can't talk, I can't move my jaw. And it's like, uh-oh, this is, this is problems. So I take him to the hospital, and uh, <laughs> yeah, and they confirm his jaw's broken. Well, he can't talk. They're wiring his mouth shut. So who has to call his parents? <laughs> and so, uh, so I, you know, use the hospital phone, and I, I, I'm calling at about 2, 3 a.m., and Amber picks up, and it's like, whew, whew, okay. But then I find myself thinking, if I tell her that I just punched her brother, and broke his jaw, she's going to abandon me. It's over. It's over. And so I didn't tell her right then and there. I just told her, hey, Paul was, you know, goofing around with some guys, and, and he got hurt and broke his jaw, and I'll update you in the morning. You know, go back to bed. And then I have to call in the morning and say, it was me. It was me. Now, thanks be to God that I married a woman of grace and she forgave me and didn't abandon me. But my fear of abandonment caused me to behave in a way in which I wanted to hide. I don't want you to know who I am and what I've done. Why? Because I'm afraid of being abandoned. And I think that probably all of us have a little bit of this abandonment uh, mindset where we're afraid of being abandoned, and it creates a performance-driven way of relating to others rather than a covenant way of relating to others, right? This used to be the way that I lived. My Christian walk was this fear of abandonment from God. Like, every time I messed up, I was worried, maybe God isn't going to accept me because of this sin that I'm doing. Maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I'm not a Christian, I have to prove that I'm good, because if I don't, God could abandon me. How many of us have that view of God? How many of us have that view of, of each other? 
But if you are in Christ, if your hope is in his life and in his death, in your place, you will never, never experience the Father turning away from you because Jesus took that for you. Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. That is the gospel. That's the gospel. Where does that leave us? Well, on one hand, it's just a truth that we all have to sit with. We just need to kind of reflect and think, am I relating to a God, to God in a way that is from a place of a fear of abandonment? Because I've abandoned him, so maybe he's going to abandon me. Is that where we're living out of? I don't know your story. I don't know if it's one of you being abandoned or being an abandoner, but your story needs to interact with a Savior that doesn't abandon you. Jesus doesn't abandon the abandoned or the abandoners. So that's one part of it. But then the other part of this is that we need to see that it's not just our story that intersects with the gospel in the garden. How do we view others? Does this immeasurable amount of grace and forgiveness that I have received translate into how I treat others? Like if I'm honest with you, I'm, if I'm going to be anybody in this story, I'm probably Peter, right? In this text, I have, I have this uh, overly developed sense of passion and justice. Like, oh, you're coming at me? You coming at, at, at my, my uh, brothers and sisters in Christ? You coming at me? Well, uh, off with your head. Whew. Except I'm a bad aim, so I get the ear, right? Um, and, and what's going on there, right, in the heart of Peter? What's going on? It's like, I don't, I don't just want to see people, like, disciplined or rebuked. I want to see their heads come off. I want to see them punished. And Jesus says to Peter and to Eric and to you, put your sword away. Don't you see that I'm not here to take life? I'm here to bring it. I'm here to give life. I'm not here to take it. In order for Jesus to do his work in our hearts, we have to let Jesus take our swords for each other and beat them into plowshares. To beat them into farm equipment. I have to see that it's not just my story that intersects with Jesus, but it's your story too. So we're, we're getting ready here in a moment to take communion, a different kind of cup. We'll talk about that here in a second. Taking communion with, with each other. And we're not drinking from a cup of wrath any longer. Now we get to drink from a cup of redemption, a cup of redemption, a cup of, a, of atonement, not the cup of God's wrath. And we have to ask ourselves, am, am I relating to God as though he's going to abandon me, or am I relating to God because of what, in a way in which Christ has drank God's wrath for me, that, that Jesus will never abandon me, God will never abandon me? And am I living this out in the way in which I relate to others? where I'm being forgiving of others. The bread represents 
Christ's body broken for us. His body was broken to the point of death so that he could become the breath of life. And his blood, or then the cup represents Jesus' blood shed for us. This is a cup of atonement. Now, if you're, a, if you're not a believer here, here's what I'd say. If you're not a believer here this morning, uh, this isn't really for you. Uh, you don't have to participate in this because we don't want you to proclaim something that's not true for you. So if you're, if you're not a Christian and you're here today and you're like, what is this? Don't worry about it. Like, there's going to be plenty of people not participating, and it's, it's, it's good for you to not actually participate if you're not a Christian and if this doesn't represent you because it shows a respect, shows a respect for what this represents. And, and, and in addition to that, the Scriptures tell us if there is something that I have against a brother or sister in Christ, to, to leave this right here and to immediately go to them and be reconciled to them to be reconciled to them. And so today as we take communion, we want to drink it in a worthy manner. We want to remember that this is the cup of redemption, the cup of atonement, and not the cup of God's wrath. And we want to drink it in a, in a respectful way that's according to the scriptures. And so um, so just in, exhort you guys to be obedient to that. Um, I'm going to pray. The band is going to come forward, and they're uh, going to lead us in worship. Um, and then when you, whenever you're ready, you can take communion whenever you're ready. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you sent your son. And I'm thankful that your son was obedient, even though we forsook him and forsake him and turned our back on him, and even though you forsook your own son. Thank you for that. Thank you for... Um, for sending your son, Jesus. Father, I pray that we would try our best to embody the gospel and to let the truths of Jesus sink into our hearts to the point of where we become people that are able to love others, forgive others, and not, not continue our ways of being abandoners, abandoning you and abandoning others. Pray that the gospel would continue to take root in our hearts so that we would become more like you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.